the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills. So, it's 1982, and 12-year-old me is listening to Casey Kasem's American Top 40 radio program. And I hear this song that has a kind of 1950s sound to it. You're my love. You're my angel. You're the girl of my dreams. Casey announces that the song is called Daddy's Home by someone named Cliff Richard, and it's number 23 that week. Now... I had no idea that Daddy's Home was a cover of an old Shep in the Limelights record from 1961. Hey, I was 12. For all I knew, this guy Cliff Richard just came up with that song last week. I wasn't old enough to buy my own records at that point, but I made a mental note to remember the singer's name, Cliff Richard. Two years later, I'm in a record store in upstate New York called Pick-A-Disc. But now, uh-huh, I've got allowance money, and it's burning a hole in my pocket. You know, one of those situations where you walk into a store and you're just going to purchase something because you know you can and i'm staring at the wall of cassettes behind the counter and i see this title 25 years of gold by cliff richard aha i remembered that name i asked the guy behind the counter to get it for me and he hands it over it's a cassette from australia don't know what it's doing here in new york but hey there it is there's the song it's the last track on side two daddy's home i buy the cassette so now i'm back home And I'm looking at this cassette, and I don't recognize a lot of the songs on side one. You know, with the exception of Do You Want to Dance, I know that song. So I give it a listen. These songs aren't 80s songs that have a throwback sound to them. These actually sound like older recordings. They're good, though. I'm really impressed. I'm impressed that Cliff can do ballads and up-tempo rockers. And, you know, it's like the whole history of rock and roll on one side of that cassette. And he does it all note perfect. And his band is incredible. Intrigued, I go back to pick a disc, and I ask if there are any more Cliff Richard cassettes. Indeed, there's another one. It's on EMI's Music for Pleasure label, and the cover sports this photo of a good-looking guy with a big smile, kind of looks like a young Elvis. And the title of the cassette is Cliff in the 60s. Cliff in the 60s? How old is this guy? I mean, I thought he was about 25. He looks about 25 to me. Now, I should also point out that around the same time, I became a huge Beatles fanatic. I'd been a Beatles fan since 1976 when I was just a little kid, but now I was, you know, buying the records and collecting the whole catalog and reading everything I could about them. And like a lot of people in America, I had seen Paul McCartney's Coming Up video and had wrongly assumed that Paul was parodying Buddy Holly in the video. And I read an article about it. Turns out we'd all gotten it wrong. He was dressed up like Hank Marvin. Hank Marvin? Who's Hank Marvin? Well, I found out he was a guy in this group called The Shadows. Wait a minute. The Beatles have a song called Cry for a Shadow. Could there be a connection? And then I found out The Shadows backed up this guy named Cliff Richard. It's all coming together. Now, to be honest, I sort of put Cliff and the Shads aside for a long time as I got into other rock bands and genres of music and had a brief flirtation with techno for a while. It wouldn't be until about 2014 or so in the U.S. release of Cliff Richard's The Fabulous Rock and Roll Songbook that I became fully re-immersed in all things Cliff and all things Shadows. 
Now, I was fortunate enough to have a radio show at the time, and I still do, and I had Cliff as a guest on my show, and I told him, I said, I'm not just one of these American fans who knows one or two songs. I, I know the whole catalog. I love it. And I did. I began collecting his entire catalog. Naturally, in this day and age, when you start to do that, when you start to get heavily into an artist, you look for a corresponding podcast where they go through each song, album by album, track by track. You know, there's so many of them. The Elvis has a few. The Beatles have a whole bunch of them. And I just assumed that an artist with the stature of Cliff Richard, one of the biggest selling artists in music history, and The Shadows, one of the biggest and one of the most respected instrumental combos ever, that there would be, naturally, a podcast that did just that. But there wasn't one. And I kept checking back every few months to see if someone had started one up, but they never did. And then it dawned on me. Am I going to have to be the guy to do this? It's going to fall to me? Now, before we go any further, I should say that there is Paul Dyer's excellent Wired for Sound podcast, which is packed with interviews with people who've worked with Cliff over the years. It's just great. And, of course, there's Cliff Richard Radio, which is a 24-7 online Cliff-themed internet radio station, which also plays shadow stuff. But what this program, the one we're calling We Say Yeah, aims to do is to review and discuss every Cliff Richard and the Shadows single, EP, and LP in chronological order, with a variety of guests on a monthly basis. Now, considering that's over 60 years' worth of music and the glacial pace we're taking here of just one podcast a month, I'm hoping I can get married and have children so they can inherit the podcast and finish it for me. I'm kidding, of course. In fact, in this very first show, we're going to cover all of 1958 and a little bit of 1959. So we could get through this stuff in, I don't know, 30 years. <laughs> Vic Rust joins us today. He's the author of the Cliff Richard Recording Catalog and the Shadows Recording Catalog, two indispensable books for a show like this. And we're going to cover Cliff's first four singles, as well as the Oh Boy album. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. I began by asking Vic Rust, how does one go from being a big fan of Cliff and the Shadows to writing these gigantic, all-encompassing, thoroughly entertaining books? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I guess it was the kind of book that I wanted myself to go out and buy. And I couldn't find anything similar apart from the sessions book by um, Peter Lurie and Nigel Goodall. Um, but there wasn't anything that went into the, uh, the detail of the songs themselves and, and uh, who's involved and, and, and so on and so forth. So I, I, not finding anything, I, I followed the premise that if there isn't a book out there, why not write it yourself? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, we seem to be operating <laughs> under the same principle here. Both books are an invaluable resource, and later on we'll tell people how they can they can order the books and find out more. You could be a daredevil and read these books from front to back, but what I do, because the Cliff book is laid out alphabetically, I listen to a song like uh, Steady With You, one of the ones we'll talk about later today, and then I'll flip to the pages that covered that song and find out when it was recorded, the personnel on it, the story behind the song. And I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, I only have the Cliff book. Soon I will have the book on the shadows. All right, so let's begin. We need to mention up front that there are existing home demos, I guess you would call them, uh, recorded by Cliff doing songs like Breathless, and those demos predate 
these sessions that we'll talk about today in Studio 2, EMI London. I guess we'll get into these demo recordings sometime in the future when we get up to the Rock and Roll Years compilation. But the quick thumbnail sketch of the basic story here, uh, young Harry Webb is walking down the street with some buddies and he hears Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel coming out of the back of a parked car. He's instantly smitten with rock and roll and in short order enlists some friends to form a group and they start gigging and recording demos. Harry changes his name to Cliff Richard and in less than two years He's got a recording contract and he's off and running. That is correct, yes. You, you mentioned uh, Breathless and, and also Lordy Miss Claudie. They, they right. uh, actually recorded that in HMB, a record shop in Oxford Street in London. Um, and it was that that they sent round to the various producers and A&R men in the record companies. Um, and that's how they, he got started because Norrie Paramore, his producer, uh, actually found something that was... was um, a great talent there, raw, certainly, he was 17 years old, um, but that's how he got started out in, in, in recording professionally. And I'm a little confused because there seems to be a succession of managers during this early period. So Cliff has a recording contract with Columbia, which is a subsidiary of EMI, and did he get that through John Foster or this manager-slash-song-plugger named Franklin Boyd? Well, he, he did actually have a, a number of um, uh, including his dad. Actually, he was he was a manager for a while, but he did have a, a succession of of managers uh, because when he started out, he had no manager, um, so they had to find someone temporary, um, and that person was Franklin Boyd, as you mentioned. Um, but he was he was really a music publisher, so less uh, uh, a band manager. Um, and that's how it actually started. And he kind of dropped out of, out of the loop um, by the second single. And it was it was then that he actually got the formal artist manager, as well as the A&R man in Columbia, Norrie Paramore. So was it Franklin Boyd's idea for Cliff to cover the song Schoolboy Crush, or was that Norrie Paramore's idea? It was kind of uh, Norrie that wanted the Schoolboy Crush. The problem with um, uh, British music at the time, post-war, um, there wasn't an awful lot of money around for teenagers and, 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 and so on. But by the time that um, we got towards the end of the 50s, uh, lots of the songs that had made it big and were very influential, of course, with the likes of Elvis Presley, which you mentioned, and Little Richard and, and, and all, these, all these other artists. Of course, they, they, they were fantastic. But there was then a belief that um, the Brits couldn't actually write their own music. It had to be an American songwriter because they were the ones that were going to be popular and sell copies and therefore obviously make money because that's really what the record companies are in business for. Um, so, yes, yeah, Schoolboy Crush uh, was, was the one that was chosen uh, for, for Cliff to record in July 1958. Um, it's uh, Bobby Helms' record, which I'm sure you're aware, uh, mm-hmm. and it was really a, a kind of an LP track more than a, more than a single. A schoolboy crush. No, no, no. At the candy shop, at the record hop. And it's pleasant enough, and Cliff did a pretty good job of it, but there wasn't that, that kind of rock and roll aspect to it. 
Yeah, I agree. It's pleasant, and Cliff acquits himself well on it, and the Mike Sams singers back him up for the first time, and they would later uh, sing on a number of Cliff tracks. Yes. But yeah, you mentioned it was more like an album cut. That's kind of what should have happened to it. I don't think it's really A-side material. But they didn't have a, also didn't have anything for the B-side as it was going to be. So Schoolboy Crush was, was actually originally released as the single. And Ian Samwell, who was a member of the Drifters, uh, the rhythm guitarist at the time, um, he actually wrote this piece, Move It, based on a response to a music critic who had said that um, rock and roll was effectively dead at that stage. So, which is why you've got ballads and calypsos. They've got nothing on rock right. and roll. Um, and it was a kind of a throwaway thing. He wrote it on, on the top deck of a, of a double-decker bus uh, on the way to Cliff Richard's uh, parents' house uh, where they were practicing for you know, the various gigs that they're going to be doing. Um, and that's why, uh, actually, there aren't that many verses. So they repeat verse one right. uh, later, it was only in 1995 that Ian Samwell actually wrote another verse, um, which uh, Cliff recorded with Hank Marvin, who obviously became the uh, lead guitarist with The Shadows later on. Um, So it it was quite an interesting way of of doing it. So it's got influences of Chuck Berry. It's got influences of Elvis Presley, of course, because all of the bands liked Elvis Presley. So Ian Samwell wrote this, including the the, um, quite unique intro on the on the guitar and took it to the rehearsal with with his band and they kind of worked out how they were going to uh, perform it, including all the kind of vocal ticks and the hit swings and all, all the other things right. that they wanted to copy from the, the American performers. Um, and as a result of, of, of that, they actually had that rehearsed in, in their back pocket when, when they went to uh, Abbey Road to record uh, Schoolboy Crush, um, which was uh, the 24th of July, 1958. So they had three hours set aside for um, the session. And also, Norrie Paramore was, was absolutely clear that the guys that were in the band at the time uh, just didn't have what it took to uh, perform the instrumental parts, other than Terry Smart on drums, that he, he was there, and Ian Samwell was uh, sat in on rhythm guitar right. uh, on, bo- on both of those tracks. Um, but essentially, everyone else was kind of sidelined. Um, and Ernie Shear and, and Frank Clark were brought in on guitar and bass. And of course, Ian Samuel had to then teach Ernie Shear that almost iconic introduction, uh, which, he, which he did very well. So they, they had two hours to, to spent recording multiple takes of, of, of Schoolboy Crush. Um, and, and Cliff wasn't actually very happy with it um, as a song because it, while it was pleasant enough, as I said, there, there wasn't the energy that he, he wanted from the rock and roll aspect. Uh, they had to move it um, in their back pocket, as I say, and what they did was suggest to Norrie Paramore that, that that's what they should record as, as the, the prospective B-side and thought, well, we've got nothing else here. Why not? Let's, let's do it. Because at that time, B-sides were just throwaway material. 
Right. They weren't intended to be anything um, that, that anybody really wanted to, to, to listen to. So then, uh, as, a, as a result of, of, of that, they, they started recording it. They, they got it down in, a, in an hour and a quarter. Uh, they ran slightly over time. And Cliff actually uh, told me the story that because he was used to um, standing in front of the microphone, he had a guitar in front of him, um, right. so he had something to do with his hands. But because he wasn't actually uh, going to be performing on the record, he didn't have a guitar, so he felt a little bit lost. And Norrie Paramore actually recognised there was something that wasn't quite working. I, I mean, Cliff was singing well, but it, it was missing something. And it was obvious that he was fidgety and nervous. So Norrie Paramore suggested that he actually put the guitar on, not play it, but just so he had the kind of performing persona that he, that he normally had, uh, which he did. But as Cliff also says, he couldn't stop himself just strumming along to a few chords so, although he's officially not playing on the record, he is, he is. playing a few yeah. chords. Yeah. What a great story. I mean, here we have Ian Samwell saying, no, rock and roll isn't dead. And yes, the British can write a credible rock and roll song. And he does it yes. very quickly. And not only that, he's going to be the prime songwriter for Cliff and the Drifters for the next few singles. So he launches his own career and he sort of launches a very significant part of British rock and roll history, one that's not talked about as much as it should be. You know, that famous quote from John Lennon that yes. there had been nothing worth listening to in British music until Cliff Richard and Move It. I, I agree with that quote up to a point. I mean, I don't want to disparage Tommy Steele and everybody who, who came before and did great records, but there is a difference. There's a different sound with Move It. The instrumentation, the performance, everything about it just sounds very real, very genuine, because it is. And you know what? Nori Paramore is underrated as a producer because that record sounds like it could have been cut yesterday. I mean, it's yes. so clean. It just sounds incredible. I agree. And I read, it may be in one of Steve Turner's books, that it was Nori Paramore's daughter who recognized that Move It would be the track that the teenagers would like. Or is that... Uh, some kind of record hype. I think there's a little bit of folklore going on here. Yeah, you, yeah. You've got exactly the same uh, story that's told about Apache. That's ah. Shadow's first first British number one, because originally what they wanted to have was was the instrumental version of Quartermaster's Stores or Quatermaster's Stores, right. as they called it, because of Quatermaster in the Pit um, in 1960, um, because of people coming out of um, the army. Uh, right. So it would resonate with them. And, and again, Quatermaster Stores, it's a pleasant enough uh, performance. And, and, you know, the Shads are, have done a great job on it. But it's Apache that actually took the, the, the honours, really, because of, because of the way it was performed. It's a superlative track. And it actually has Cliff playing on that as well, right at the beginning, the yeah. drums at the start of it. So, you know, it's, it's, it, but yeah, the, the same story is told of Apache as is told of, of Move It, that it was, it was played to Nori Parham's daughters. And they said, no, play the other side, because that's great. Actually, what I think is, is more likely to be the case is they were hawking it around the then fledgling uh, television uh, stations, um, the Independence and the BBC um, uh, over here in the UK. And Jack Good had just started up a programme called Oh Boy, um, which was designed to be for teenagers and to play current music. And... When the record of, of Schoolboy Crush with Move It on the Back was taken into Jack Good's office, 
he listened to it and said, well, yeah, it's, it's fine, as we've been saying, yeah, it's, it's fine enough as it goes. Um, but I'm not going to have Cliff on the show unless he performs Move It. And so because of that and the uh, reception that it got, that's when they started flipping the, the single over and said, actually, the A-side is Move It. And it was the right decision because it went to number two. It did, yes. Yeah. Held, held off um, by uh, when by the Kalian twins. Ah, that's also significant because uh, there'd be that famous tour and then the event uh, yes. later on, which was a reunion of sorts. So let's move on to the second single. It's another Ian Samwell creation, High Class Baby on the A side and My Feet Hit the Ground on the B side. And we've got the same personnel here. This was recorded October 3rd, 1958. Just 11 days before what had to have been a pretty spectacular birthday for Cliff, because <laughs> all of his dreams were coming true. I've heard him say that before. You know, he says, oh, his rock and roll dream was coming true. And I've thought to myself, and you've only just had that dream the night before, because rock and roll hadn't been around that long. It happened really fast for him. Let's hear a little bit of High Class Baby. Champagne and caviar are all very grand. But I prefer this rocket to a rock and roll band. You find a joint at the hopping and a cat at the bumping and the rubbing or stopping me. Wait and see. A lot of things I gotta do. Go put on my dancing shoes, honey. I salute the booth. Bye bye, my baby. I love this track. I think it may have been Ian Samwell who said he wasn't crazy about the robotic monotone background vocals. You know, the high class baby. Yes. High class baby. Funnily enough, though. It sort of reminds me of a song that came out many years later by Madonna called Material Girl, which feature the same kind of background vocals, and weirdly, both songs are about the same subject. I'm not saying one influenced the other. I'm just pointing out that it's interesting. So, again, I love High Class Baby. I think it's a breakneck-paced rockabilly number. My Feet Hit the Ground is also good. It suffers in comparison because it sounds an awful lot like High Class Baby. Yes. Uh, interestingly, actually, um, High Class Baby wasn't originally intended to be the second single. Ah. Cliff recorded uh, a, a version of uh, Don't Bug Me Baby. Right. Which was, was actually owned by Arberbach Music, which was run by Franklin Boyd, the aforementioned Franklin Boyd. So actually th there are examples of, of advertising where it's saying that the next single is going to be uh, Don't Bug Me Baby, backed with My Feet Hit the Ground. However, um, it was generally thought that because Move It had been such a, a mega success by Ian Samuel, uh, as, as we've said, uh, that it would be worth taking another of his songs and seeing what they could do with it and see whether it would be, be as popular or more popular, maybe even get to number one. And with My Feet Hit the Ground, they didn't feel that that, that would be as, as good a choice um, for the single, that it would therefore be the B-side. Feet at the ground. Who will you walk? Uh huh. Who will you talk? Who will you smile and dance with me? Makes me believe no need to grieve. There's really use it. Oh, interestingly, uh, the Joseph Cena, who's mentioned um, as the co-writer of My Feet Hit the Ground, is a pseudonym for Nori Paramore. 
Yes. He co-wrote that yes. with, uh, with Ian Samwell. Um, so, yes, I, I agree. I do like High Class Baby. Um, I know that a lot of people thought that because it wasn't as popular as Move It, it got to, still got to number seven, it was top ten in, in the right. UK, um, because it wasn't as popular that, that actually Cliff was potentially a one-hit wonder type of scenario, which I think is very unfair and also history shows that that definitely wasn't the case. Right. But I also like to think about it. Um, here was this 17-year-old, rising 80, um, a few days later after recording it. Here was this 17-year-old who'd, who'd been thrown into the music business, effectively, because it, it, it was a, a month before that he recorded the um, demo tracks that they sent off, and then suddenly was thrust into this world that he really wanted to be part of and couldn't believe his luck but also felt that it could end any moment now. So which is why it's interesting that uh, when Cliff talks about his early singles, he recognises that Move It was the stellar song, um, and then everything that followed, the next three singles, generally were a, a poorer relative. Not poor, but a poorer relative. Right. And, and that is actually shown, as, as, as I've said, by, by the, the placings in the chart, which is very unfortunate. Because it is a good song. Yeah, it is. And we're going to see diminishing returns as we move into discussing the next single. But as far as High Class Baby is concerned, you know, it still pops up on hits compilations. I have it several times over. I've got it on 75 at 75. I've got it on the best of the rock and roll pioneers. I never turn it down. I never turn it off when it comes on. The same can't be said, however, for the next single, Live in Love and Doll, a song written in protest to thwart the uh, potential hit in the up-tempo movie version of the song Living Doll, which the group would later re-record in a, in a slower version and have a huge hit with it. Um, was the film Serious Charge out by the time Living Love and Doll was released? By the time it was released, yes. All right, all right. I have to, before we get into Living Love and Doll, I, I'm one of those people, I like the up-tempo version of Living Doll. That's in serious charge. I don't think of it as this, this terrible travesty that I keep hearing about. And I know Cliff feels that way. I know the shadows feel that way. Um, I like it. You know, that dun 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 I cry. I mean, it might be because it's the first version of that song I ever heard because it was used in the 1982 documentary, The Complete Beatles. Yes. And they used it sort of facetiously as showing, you know, well, uh, well, this is what they were doing in London. You know, it wasn't as cool as what we were doing in Liverpool at the time. And it had the opposite effect on me because when I saw the clip, I thought, I think that's pretty cool, actually. And it, it's interesting to note that in that same documentary, right after that, Jerry Marsden does this sort of over the top silly version of Living Doll to you know, drive the contrast home. And it would only be, uh, I don't know, six, seven years later that he was playing the event with Cliff. But anyway, let's hear a little bit of Livin' Lovin' Doll. Oh, oh, you livin' lovin' doll, well, livin' lovin' doll. Livin' lovin' doll. I want you, want you, want time, I have to kiss you, can't resist you. Oh, 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 you livin' lovin' doll, yeah. And now let's hear the flip side to Live and Love and Doll, a ballad called Steady With You. Steady with you. 
Well, now we're talking. You know, I, I really like this track as a as a ballad. I think it's strong. I think Cliff's vocal performance is a little shaky here, keeping in mind that he's very young. It wouldn't be too much longer until he was knocking these things out of the park and was brilliant. But at this point, he sounds a little unsure of himself. I'll tell you what, though. I think Steady With You should have been the A-side. I agree. Um, yeah, uh, what you say about Serious Charge and Living Dull trying to circumvent that being uh, released or if it was released to uh, try and put a, a kibosh on it in some way. Um, I agree with you as well. In, in certainly in comparison with Living Love and Dull, I, I, I think the up-tempo Living Dull is far better than Living Love and Dull. Which incidentally was uh, was also uh, it's written by Johnny May and Jim Gusted. Jim Gusted is another nom de plume <laughs> of Nori Paramore. <laughs> right. Uh, um, so uh, yes, I, I I I think you know it was, it was recorded fourteenth um, of November nineteen fifty eight, along with Steady with You, and because they would have spent more time trying to do Living Love and Doll than Steady with You, because Living Love and Doll was going to be the, the, the chosen single. I think more time could have been spent on perfecting Steady With You and, and yep. making it, again, it's, a, it's an excellent recording, but I, I think it could have, could have been improved. Um, and it's, it's also the first, um, it's the first single that has uh, Hank Marvin and Bruce Welsh and yes. uh, Jet Harris on it as, as the nucleus, if you like, of, of the drifters that became the shadows. Yeah, we're very close. We're very close to uh, having the... the uh... The, that core original lineup you know steady with you had to have been popular though because i know that they performed it certainly on saturday club it's on that let me tell you baby it's called rock and yes. roll compilation and you can hear the audience going nuts you know when they go to play it you hear the girls squealing in the audience so it uh, this is one of those cases where if i were the a and r guy i would have said no guys flip that record steady with you is the stronger cut let's it's you know let's let's do four hours tonight instead of three hours and nail <laughs> <laughs> steady with you so we get that as the a side that goes to number 20 live and love and doll and um of course in a future program i'll be discussing living doll which had a very different story as it goes to number one it becomes the first number one and that brings us to the fourth and final single that we're going to talk about today and that's mean streak backed with another ian samwell and uh nori paramore uh collaboration right with nori yes. under a pseudonym again yeah i just let me just pause there there's a, a guy that's known in the beetle fan community dr kenneth womack and he wrote a two-volume book on the life and work of George Martin. And George Martin appeared on a satirical program, the David Frost Show, that was the week that was, and he complained on that program about Nori Paramore having all of these different pseudonyms, a hundred or over a hundred pseudonyms, and that was how, through songwriting royalties, how he was able to afford his flashy car and his luxurious <laughs> uh, lifestyle and listen 
who can blame him? Why not have as many irons in the fire as possible? But as we as we go through these discussions, I think what we're going to find out is that possibly George Martin was correct. And at that time, George Martin would have been just an up-and-comer, and Nori yes. Paramore was really the big star at uh, Abbey Road Studios. And not just as a producer, he had the Nori Paramore Orchestra, and he was doing movie scores, and I love all of that stuff. You know, I'm not just a guy who listens to rock and roll. I love it all. I'm a music fan. So Nori's okay in my book. But getting back to this single, uh, Mean Streak backed with Nevermind, and these songs were recorded on different dates, right? Uh, well, yes, they were. The, the final releases were recorded on different days, um, but the first attempt at uh, Nevermind um, was tried on the same day as Mean Streak, uh, but for whatever reason was, was, was abandoned. And then retried three, three and a half months later in, uh, in March 1959 before its release. Um, so, yes, sort of is the answer to that question. Right. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, Mean Streak was, was the, the chosen A-side. But um, as was often the case, uh, especially at the late 50s, early 60s, and in the UK, um, what generally happened was people would be flipping over to the B-side and playing that, and then their friends or whatever would want a copy, and they'd go into the record shop and say, Please could I have Nevermind by Cliff and the Drifters. Um, so that would be written down as that is the record that's been asked for and that's what the sale goes against. So actually what we have here is, is not a double A side by any means, um, but uh, both tracks enter the UK charts under their own merits. So Mean Street got to number 10 and Nevermind got to number 21. Now, because essentially they were competing for uh, places in the chart, if it had been released as a double A side, it could well have got, uh, because of the numbers, it could well have got into a much higher position, top five maybe. It's funny you say that because this is one of those scenarios where I really can't choose between the A and the B side is what's better. Um, certainly, this is a much stronger single than the last one, and it, it, you know, as you mentioned, Mean Street goes to number ten. Never mind charts. I think we're back on track with this single. I think yes. we're heading in the right direction. And had Cliff's career ended right here, which it did for so many other early rock and rollers, you know, they had very short-lived careers. Had it ended right here, he would be remembered for putting out some very credible, hyperactive rock and roll records that I'm sure collectors would have been talking about on message boards for years to come. But that's not what happened. In fact, he goes from strength to strength to strength. The drifters become the shadows. I mean, this is significant work here. This is the beginnings of something really, really special. The fact that 
this group, this lineup is starting to coalesce and become the shadows that we know. The fact that Ian Samwell is responsible for most of this rock and roll, and it's homegrown, it's authentic, and it's consistent one song after the other. And I'm not saying that, you know, writing your own material is a shortcut to authenticity. I'm not saying that because obviously presentation and performance are just as important, but it's significant in the direction that British rock and roll would go. It's significant that guys like Ian Samwell and then a little later Billy Fury were putting their stamp on British rock and roll this early in the game. So before we wrap up today... You had mentioned Oh Boy, which was a seminal program in in, uh, British rock history. And I've seen, there's not much of it that survives, but I've seen several episodes of Oh Boy. And uh, it's like (laughs) six cups of coffee or something. It's like on permanent fast forward. I really can't (laughs) compare it to uh, something like American Bandstand. It's similar in the sense that you have the some of the acts of the day coming on and performing, but Oh Boy seems to have, Jack Good seemed to have his own stable of stars, a lot of it in tandem with Larry Parnes having those acts on there, and it's sort of like short attention span theater for rock and roll fans because they just bam, bam, bam into the next song with, with barely any chatting. But the album, the, the album, from what I understand, this is not, a recording of the television show. This was done specifically as like a promotional vehicle for the show, right? Yes, indeed. Um, it's got uh, 23, 24 tracks uh, on right, it. Um, right. And it's got, you know, the Vernon's Girls and Dallas Boys uh, who were also at the event uh, at the, the, uh, uh, on, in 1989 um, who were the, the, the main artists that appeared on the Oh Boy shows and backing singers and all, all that kind of stuff and Vince Eager and various various other people. Uh, but the reason why it's, it's worth actually pointing this out because although Cliff officially released his first album under his own name and The Drifters, which was simply called Cliff um, in right. early 1959, actually he has um, a quarter of the tracks on this album Right. There, there are there are six of them. I, I can tell you they're uh, TV Hop, Rockin' Robin, High School Confidential, Early in the Morning, King Creole, and, and Somebody Touched Me. So, that, I mean, there is a, quite a wide variety of, of, of uh, uh, song choices there. Um, but as I say, he, he had a uh, had a quarter of the, of the track list. So in some ways you could say that it's, it's, it's his first album uh, release, certainly in, in, in the fact that none of these were obviously released as, as singles. So he recorded these just a week after his um, 18th birthday, uh, again, at Abbey Road, um, on the 21st of October 1958. Um, and the backing track was pre-recorded two days beforehand. So it was just Cliff standing in the studio singing along to a backing track. He lives down a beat like a ton of coal Goes by the name of King Creole You know she's gone, gone, gone Bopping like a catfish on a pole Yeah Oh, she's gone, gone, gone Rather than coming out on uh, Columbia, which was his record label It came out on Parlophone Which is another one under the, under the right. EMI uh, umbrella Later on in December 
So it's brought out really to get some uh, teenagers, parents, aunties, uncles, or whatever, to buy it for them for Christmas. It didn't chart, I have to say, but it's a worthwhile document of history in Cliff's career. Yeah, it, it's something that I don't think is even available on CD. It's uh, not. It's, um, yeah. you, you, you mentioned you mentioned previously the the, uh, the Rock and Roll Years um, compendium um, that uh, Peter Lurie and Nigel Goodall uh, curated. Some of those tracks appear on there, and some other tracks appear on the. And they said it wouldn't last box sets for his fiftieth anniversary. Um, so the tracks are available elsewhere, but it, but it hasn't officially been released um, in anything other than the original vinyl. That's a shame because it replicates the television show. It's such great high energy stuff. I would think just as an artifact you know this the the show itself is historic i know that there was you know i think it's six five special begets oh boy which begets boy meets girl and then like that whole string of of television shows yeah right exactly right so it's all you know it all stems from this and also i was just listening recently to uh, a podcast called Liddy Pod, hosted by this guy David Bedford, and he had Chaz Newby on the show. Chaz was briefly a member of the Beatles before they they got big, and he said that they had seen it's Marty Wild, Cliff, and is it Dickie Pride doing Three Cool Cats? Yes. And and then like the next week, every every Liverpool band had that in their set list. People don't talk about it influencing, but it did. You know, and and the proof is out there. It kind of comes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning about move it as 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 being the the correct choice for 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 the single rather than schoolboy crush, because it was Jack Good who had the power to say it's move it or or Cliff doesn't appear on the show. So it kind of forced the record company's hand to to kind of swap them over. So yes, very influential indeed. So if someone were to want to get your books, where would they go? The best place I can I can suggest uh, uh, going to is uh, Leo's Den Music. Uh, it's a site that's, that's specifically for Cliff and Shadows related memorabilia, books, uh, music. You can pick up some really good rarities on there. Um, I have to say, and it's uh, Leo'sDen.co.uk, and just follow just follow through through, and, and you'll find my book on there. And they ship internationally, folks, so no matter where you are in the world, you can take possession of this book and follow along as we uh, go through Cliff Richard and the Shadows recording catalog in chronological order next month. Mark Cunningham, musician and music historian, someone who, if you're a fan of Cliff and the Shadows and you're on Facebook, I'm sure you know who Mark Cunningham is. He'll be on the program next month to talk about Cliff's debut album called Cliff, which we referenced earlier. And in the meantime, thank you again, Vic. It's been a great discussion. We couldn't have gotten this first episode off in better fashion. So again, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day, and uh, we'll have you back on the program real soon. Lovely. Thanks very much, David. I'm assuming this is recorded. I see the little recording button. <laughs> so this may, this may, nothing may have recorded at all.